We do appreciate the presence of each one this morning. I will say to those that have led us today, well done. <laughs> well done. Appreciate it very much. And for all those who participated uh, from their seat and singing together and so forth, well done today. I appreciate it very much. Very encouraging to me to be here and sing together and pray together and remember uh, Christ's sacrifice in the Lord's Supper. Uh, we do have some that are not with us today. I see a vacant spot or two as I, I look around at spots that are usually filled. Cherry's not here today. She's out of town. She'll be back tonight. Kind of miss. She sings alto. Kind of miss hearing that alto voice sitting next to me singing when she's not here, but uh, plans on being back this evening. Turn, if you will, to Mark chapter 4 this morning. Mark chapter 4. An effective way to engage the audience when you're speaking or writing is to ask questions. And so a speaker might pose a question, and that gets people that are listening thinking, what's the right answer to the question? How, how would I answer that question? How, how might others answer the question? And we find Jesus doing that as well. Jesus asking questions to draw the listeners in, to draw the, those who are uh, listening to his teaching, to draw them in. And so in preaching and teaching and writing, we ask and answer questions, even if just mentally giving the answer. Here are some places in the New Testament where questions are asked, and it's an attempt to engage the reader, engage the listener. Jesus says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, that draws us in. Well, who, who were they saying Jesus was? What's the right answer to the question? How, how am I answering that question? Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Well, that was the question that John the Baptist sent a deputation to Jesus to ask. Well, what's the right answer? He didn't tell us the right answer at that point. But what is the right answer to that question? Should John keep looking for the Messiah, or is Jesus the one? Well, well, how should they answer? By what authority do you do these things, and who gave you this authority? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? Now, that's a good question. Which is easier to say? We could discuss that for a while, I suppose. The Ethiopian man said, look, here's water. What's hindering me from being baptized? That's a pretty good question. How are you answering that question? What's hindering you from being baptized? Well, it deserves an answer. What must I do to be saved? The question of the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? What's the right answer to that question? So you can see, we're being drawn in to the sermon. We're made active listeners by answering at least mentally these questions. Well, in the story we're going to look at today, there are a couple of questions asked that we want to try to entertain. Mark chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 35 through 41, where Jesus calms the sea. We're going to uh, look at these two questions. Let's read through the passage and then... We'll talk about the questions that are raised. On that day when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, 
be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Well, the story contains several details that give us, give it what we might call the ring of authenticity. And so you look at the little minor details that are given, it just suggests to us that this is related by someone who knows what he was talking about, is familiar with the event. For example, he gives us the time when it was evening, this happened. He talks about the other boats that were along with them, although those other boats really don't play much of a role in the story. He gives a vivid description of a, a fierce gale, not just a gale, but a fierce gale. Waves are breaking. They're coming up over the sides of the boat and they're filling the boat. Jesus is asleep on a cushion. And so those little details give it that kind of ring of authenticity. Chapter 4 verse 1 tells us that Jesus began teaching the crowd and there was such a, a crowd of people pressing on him that he got into a boat and pushed off from the shore a little bit just to provide a little bit of space between himself and the crowd. And so he must have been teaching all day. And so when evening comes, he tells the disciples who were with him to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, just, just over on the other side. As they went, a storm blew up. Now my understanding is that the topography of the Sea of Galilee made it conducive to these sudden storms. And so they were not at all uncommon. And so there are tall hills and mountains along the edges of the sea, maybe some passes through those. And so because of that and certain atmospheric conditions, very sudden, sometimes very strong storms would blow up, usually during the daytime toward the afternoon and evening. And then they would die down so that it was cal usually calmer and safer at night. And so they would do a lot of their fishing and sometimes travel on the sea at night. Kind of like our weather, you know, our weather in the afternoon, especially on these hot, humid days, the clouds form and the thunderheads form. And then in the afternoon and evening, you get these strong storms. But then eventually they, they die down. And at night, it's usually much calmer. Now, if a night storm occurred, it was usually very strong and dangerous. And so here at evening, apparently after dark, they're going over to the other side and one of these night storms blows up and they're in danger. <clears throat> the waves are crashing over the sides of the boat. And it's not just getting water in the bottom of the boat. It says the boat is filling up. And so it's filling up with water. And so here it is, the wind is blowing and the seas are crashing. The waves are blowing over the side. Water, I can just imagine, they're, they're trying to get the water out, I'm sure. That's what I would be doing anyway. <laughs> and, and, and yet Jesus is, he's asleep over there on the cushion. They call out to Jesus, do you not have any concern whatsoever that we're going down? And you're, and you're there asleep. A te teacher, do you not care that we're, that we're perishing? And so they were, well, they were panicked, weren't they? You can just hear the panic in their voices and contrast that with the calm in Jesus. 
They're afraid. They're panicked. We're perishing. We're going down. The boat is filling up. And you're just calmly just on the, uh, on the seat over there on the cushion asleep. They're a little frustrated with Jesus, aren't they, for sleeping during the storm. He needs to do his part to get to the boat to shore safely. Instead, he seems unconcerned. He's not doing anything. I'm not sure what they expected him to do. Maybe at least do his part to get some of the water out of the boat. I know they didn't expect him to do what he did. And so Jesus responds by rebuking, is the word that's used in verse 39. He got up and rebuked the wind, reproved it, criticized it. And he told the seas to hush. I I like that (laughs) because I heard that a lot growing up. That seems to be kind of a southern way of putting it, doesn't it? Hush, hush, hush. And immediately, a great calm. And so, this is the New American Standard Bible, says perfectly calm. But your version may say a great calm. Incidentally, if you go back earlier, it's a great wind in verse 37. So look at that contrast as well. Great wind. And then suddenly, now I don't mean... Eventually, over time, the storm played out, and there was a calm, and they were okay. As soon as Jesus spoke, calm. Not just calm, a great calm occurs. It's obvious that the calm came about because of Jesus' word. Did you see that? (laughs) He spoke, and it was calm. And so, they raised the question in verse 41... Who is this man? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's our first question. We're going to look at two questions. That's our first question. Who who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Well, the apostles had been with Jesus for some time. By this time, at least into the second year of his ministry, they had been with him for a long time. They had come to an appreciation for who he was. But apparently they didn't grasp his true identity, at least not fully, or at least the implications of his identity. Now Mark tells us from the very beginning who Jesus was, chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark ends his book in that very same way in Mark chapter 16, when, or rather chapter 15, When the soldier, remember the soldier saw the earthquake and saw the resurrection, the crucifixion of Jesus. Remember what he says, truly this man was the son of God. So Mark begins his gospel telling us who Jesus was. He's the son of God. He ends his gospel telling us who he was. He's the son of God. And in the middle of the gospel, Mark chapter 8, Peter confesses, you are the Christ. And so we know who Jesus is from the beginning. If we've read through the book of Mark, we know the identity of Jesus. And we see the evidence that Mark provides us to support that proposition that Jesus is the Son of God. In chapter 1, we have the testimony of John the Baptist. That he is the one who's coming after me, who's mightier than I am. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his shoes. There's the testimony of John. We see the testimony of the Father at His baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. We see the 
uh, that Jesus taught with authority in chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. He impressed the crowds with His teaching in that He taught with authority. In chapter 1, verses 23 through 28, He demonstrates His authority over the demons. In fact, the word authority is a critical word or important word in these first couple of chapters especially. He teaches with authority. What is this? A new teaching with authority? that uh, people observe when He casts out the demon. And then chapter 2, in order to show you that I, the Son of Man, have authority to forgive sins. He's the man who has authority. That's who this man is. He's the Son of God. Notice the confession of the demons in verse 24. We know who you are, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. We see that as well in chapter 3 and verse 11. Jesus was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who He was. Maybe the implication of, of, of those accounts is that, you know, if the demons can figure out who He is, can't you figure out who He is? <laughs> He's the Son of God. Who is this man, they ask? Well, Mark is telling us. And then in chapter 1, verse 29, He heals. He heals Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. Verse 32, He heals various diseases. Verse 40, He heals a leper. Chapter 3, in verse 1, He heals a man with a withered hand. In chapter 2, in verse 10, He pronounces a man's sins forgiven. Who can forgive sins but God? That, that's really a correct observation. But Jesus forgives sins and shows that He has the authority to do that by saying to the man, get up and walk. Who is this man? He is, he's the Son of God. Chapter 2, in verse 28, He shows that He is the Lord of the Sabbath. All these things point to Jesus' true identity. He's the Son of God. This particular story, Mark chapter 4, Jesus calming the sea, shows us that He has the power to control the sea. Look at a few verses from the book of Psalms. Go back to the book of Psalms. We're going to look at just two or three statements back in. We're going to begin in the 65th Psalm. The 65th Psalm, verses 5 through 8. By awesome deeds you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea, who establishes the mountains by his strength, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples. And so it's God who controls the seas, who calms or stills the roaring of the seas. Look at the 89th Psalm. The 89th Psalm, verses 6 through 10. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all those who are around Him. O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves arise, you still them. He's talking about the Lord. Who has the power to calm the sea? The Lord does. Anybody else? No. The Lord has the power to calm the sea, to still the sea. And then look at the 107th Psalm in verse 23. The 107th Psalm, verse 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they've seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. He spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted the white waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens, they went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. 
They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Sounds like the apostles in the boat, doesn't it? Then they cried to the Lord at their trouble, and He brought them out of their distress. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Who is this man? Well, he's the man the Psalms have been talking about. He's the Lord. Only the Lord has the power to calm the seas. And yet this man, at His word, calmed them. I don't quote from 2 Maccabees very often, but there's a statement in the ninth chapter of that book in, in verse 8. The, the book of 2 Maccabees is an account of the persecution of the Jews by Antiochus IV, and the Jews raise up, rise up in revolt against them. Describing Antiochus the persecutor, the writer says, that's he who had been thinking that he would command the waves of the sea in his supernatural arrogant, arrogance was brought down to earth. And so the Psalms say it, only God can control the sea. The Jews know it, only God can control the sea. The apostles saw it when they saw Jesus calm the sea. The sea was a chaotic, tumultuous, dangerous place. People would go out and never come back again, never a trace seen of them again. No man can control it, only God. And the apostles see it on that day. And so Mark raises the question that they ask, Who is this? Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? What answer did they give? What answer should they have given? What do you think? What answer should they have given? What answer do you give? Who is this man? What, what do you think? After what we've talked about for the last few minutes, what, what, what's your conclusion about the identity of this man who can just simply say, hush, and the storm becomes calm, very peaceful? Well, here's the answer, I think. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Well, let's look at the first question in the text then. In verse 40, after Jesus speaks the storm calm, <laughs> they're in a panic. All he says is, peace be still, and it becomes still. And you can almost see in your imagination Jesus turning to them and saying, why, why are you guys so afraid? You still don't believe? You still have no faith? Well, let's think about that question. I know that's two questions, but we'll, we'll take them as one. Just a couple of observations. You know, Jesus has spent a lot of time with the apostles to reveal to them who He was. I'm, he's spending time for that very purpose. I want you to understand who I am so that they could go out and be able to teach the gospel to the lost. And He's presenting enough evidence for them to understand who He is. Have I been with you so long now and you still don't understand who I am? That seems to be the question. He's a little frustrated with their slowness to pick up on that, or at least to understand more fully the implications of Him being the Son of God, the Christ. And so he's a little frustrated with them. He gets frustrated with them on other occasions as well. They should have, by this time, been a little bit further along in their understanding than, than they were. Another observation, do you remember the term an inverse proportion? Do you remember that term? 
I vaguely recall that, I think from high school math days. Now, Kevin admitted in, in the Bible class that math, math was not his strong suit. He's much better at math than I am. <laughs> inverse relationship, inverse proportion. Well, that, that idea, the idea is, you know, a direct proportion would be as one thing goes up, another thing goes up right along with it. An inverse proportion would be as one thing goes up, the other thing goes down. And so they're, they're sort of opposites. They're reversed or inverse. You have an inverse proportion here, don't you? Are you afraid? Don't you have faith? You see that inverse proportion? The more faith, the less fear. The less faith, faith the more fear. If you had more faith, you wouldn't be afraid. Your fear is an indication that your faith is not what it should be. Now, faith is not only understanding that certain things are true. It is that. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that that's true. But faith is also confidence and trust in a person. And so we believe in Christ. We have faith in Him. We have confidence in Him. We trust in Him. If the disciples had better understanding and confidence in Christ, they would have had less fear, perhaps no fear, of the storm. Well, that raises then this question. You know, it's, it's, and I think it's a natural progression to go from Jesus asking the apostles, why are you afraid? To us asking ourselves, or Jesus asking us, why are you afraid? Don't you believe in me? That's kind of the question that he asked them. How is it that you still have no faith? Don't you believe in me? Don't you understand that I'm the Son of God? Don't you understand that I have a mission as the Son of God? Chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus says, Let's go to another town and teach. That's why I've come. Don't you understand that, that I and my mission are not going to come to an end drowning in the Sea of Galilee? Don't, don't you know that's not... <laughs> That's not the end of it. You should understand that by now. And so the natural progression is, what, what, are your, what, what are you afraid of? And are you afraid of those things because you have no faith? Well, you can Google, like I did, our greatest fears. <laughs> what are our greatest fears? And we'll touch on a few in the minutes that we've got left. Sometimes we fear financial hardship. Am I going to be able to provide for my family? How am I going to make it through the month? You ever have that fear? How are we going to make it through the month? Seems like every time I go to the mailbox, there's a new bill. Unexpected expenses month after month. I, I heard somewhere long ago, and maybe a lot of truth to it, you can just count on one unexpected bill a month. It might be a car repair. It might be a doctor expense. You might be just something that you don't count on in your budget, if you do a budget. Just something, almost at least one every month. And so these unexpected expenses arise. We make a mistake or two in our finances, overspend a little bit. We get behind, and then we get a little behinder, and the stress increases and we begin to fear. What are you afraid of? Don't you understand that God has promised that He's going to provide and He's going to take care of you? 
Now that's not permission to live recklessly. We understand that. But it just gives us assurance and peace of mind that whatever circumstances we face, God will provide. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. For this reason I say to you, don't be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink or your body as to what you'll put on. Is not life more than the food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are, are you not worth more than they? Now God's going to take care of His people. Why are you afraid? Don't you believe God's promise? Why do you fear? Don't you have confidence that the Lord who promised these things will fulfill them? Over in the book of Hebrews, we have a similar promise. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And so, live sensibly, make wise decisions. Husbands and wives, work together, work together, pray for God's help, and don't be afraid. God will provide. We sometimes are afraid of what people will say about us. We're afraid that people are going to ridicule us, maybe tease us or ridicule us about our appearance. You're too tall, you're too short, you're too heavy, you're too thin. And we're afraid of what people are going to say. They're going to tease us about our clothes or our intellect. You know, you're kind of dumb. Or you're too smart. (laughs) Or they tease us for our lack of ability. Sometimes ridicule us even for our faith. And so we resort to all manner of behaviors to avoid this. If we're criticized for our faith, we may turn to ungodly behavior to avoid the ridicule. Please don't do that. Please. Proverbs 15 verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the good and the evil. We may sometimes emphasize the evil part of that. He's watching your every move, and He knows the evil that you do. But the passage also says He's keeping watch on the good. You know, when you stand up, even though you're being ridiculed for your faith, when you stand up and take it, and don't compromise, and don't resort to all manners of behavior to avoid, God sees the good that you're doing. He sees the good. There's an interesting statement over in the book of Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. God is not unjust to forget your work and the love that you've shown toward His name. When you stand up for what's right, even in the face of criticism and ridicule, God sees that and He's not going to forget it. God is not going to forget the good that you do. Now, I may not be able to do too much about people ridiculing you because you're tall or short or things like that, but I can pretty much guarantee you a couple of things. That if you'll do what's right in the face of this criticism, you will be a hero in God's sight. And you will be a hero in the sight of God's people. And so you just be patient. You You might have to withstand a little teasing, a little ridicule, a little criticism. But when you get among God's people, you're going to be a hero. And so don't be afraid. 
Don't, don't be afraid. Just trust in the Lord. He sees and He's not going to forget. We sometimes fear the future and how our circumstances may change. Oh no, we, got, we know what we've got now. <laughs> I've got, I know what I've got now. I, I'm good with that. I'm comfortable with that. But I don't know what's going to happen in the future. Now some of us have a tendency just to think the worst. I mean, it's just, it's just natural for us. And we, when we're laying in bed at night, we're thinking of all the terrible scenarios that might play out in our lives. Now, what if this happens? Oh, no, what if that happens? What if I go there and then? And, then? and, and so we, we're, we become afraid of the future. What if I lose my job? What if we're transferred to another location? Look, uh, are we afraid because we're afraid that things are going to, terrible are going to happen to us and we're just not going to be able to make it through our, you know, look at Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8. Moses says, the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now that's an interesting statement. I, I <laughs> kind of like that. Again, the Lord is the one the Lord, he doesn't just say the Lord is the one who is with you. Now, he does say that, but he says more than that. The Lord is the one who's going ahead of you. So, so whatever, wherever we're going in our lives, the Lord's already there, so to speak. He's leading you. He's going ahead of you. In Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 25, one of the characteristics of the worthy woman is, do you remember this? She smiles at the future. She's not afraid of the future. She smiles at the future. See, she understands the Lord is going ahead of me. Not only is He with me, but He's going ahead of me. Don't be afraid. Believe in the promise of God. Walk with God and believe. I suppose one of our greatest fears is that something bad is going to happen to our children. And that's, I think that's, that's a great fear that most of us have, a sickness, an injury. We might be afraid that they'll lose their faith or their faithfulness. And I understand there are no guarantees in raising children, but there are things we can do to increase the chances of a good outcome. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 tells us, or this, see, this is, uh, begins in verse 4, verse 7, you shall teach these commandments, you shall teach them diligently to your sons, you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Right, so we, what can we do to greatly increase the chance of a good outcome with my children? You can teach the law of the Lord diligently, not casually, not haphazardly, not sporadically, diligently teach them to your children. We can instill in them principles of truth in the appropriate way while they're young. While they're young. You want, you want a good outcome? Train your children in the way they should go when they're, when they're young. And then they're more likely to continue in that, in that way in, in their old age. We can teach them in word and deed to obey. They can see us obeying. Teach them in word and deed to obey, to serve to make faithfulness to God our first priority. We can involve them in spiritual activities in their youth. 
Now, that's, that's a huge thing that we can do. You can have your children participate in the spiritual activities while they're young. Now, we're having a teen Bible study on Saturday. It's arranged for that. If you're a teenage child, you're, you're welcome to be here. Now, we're not going to turn anybody away, especially a gear for those teenagers. You don't know what you can do to help make a good outcome more likely in your child. Get them involved in spiritual activities in their youth. Things like the teen Bible study. Things like the uh, Bible studies in people's homes. Things like that. Involvement makes a huge difference in a person's life. And then, of course, we can pray. We can pray for our children. Ask Charles Brown out in the foyer one day. I can remember it very well, standing kind of over there by the water fountain. He, at this time, had two, he had two girls. They had two, two children, both of them girls. They were grown and married when I asked them this question and had been for a while. Charlie, you ever get to the point where you stop worrying about your children? Never. <laughs> that was the answer. Never, never. You know, so the time may never come where we completely stop being afraid for our children. But do what can be done. Trust in the Lord and try not to fear. And then we fear sickness and death. For some, the fear of sickness is a debilitating condition. It's very strong. Have you ever known anybody that, you know, they, they, you know, they have a little twinge here or there? And, oh, no. It's automatically go to the worst. For some folks, it's, you know, it's a very strong fear. And the small things become consuming. Well, God understands the fear we have of death. And in fact, He's done something about it. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Fear, free those who through fear of, of death. He frees us from the fear of death, doesn't he? And so, and so we don't live under that enslavement, fearing death. Because if we walk with God, He makes death nothing more than a transition from this life to the next. For, for a believer, that's all it is. It's a transition from this life to the next. Remember what Jesus says in John 11 and verse 25? He says to Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? So, of course, we're going to die physically, but our spirit just keeps right on living and transitioning from this life then to glory. So are you afraid of death? <laughs> Try to believe in God's promise and don't be afraid. At, le at least we can be working on it, right? At least we can be working on that. Learning more and more to trust and be confident in what God has to give His faithful children. So here are two questions as Jesus calms the sea. Who is this? That even the winds and the, the sea obey Him. He's Jesus, the Son of God. That's who He is. And if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, 
Why are we afraid? It is the Lord who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together and to worship you. We pray, Father, that what we've done and said here today has been consistent with your will. Our our prayer today, Father, is that what we've said about your word, what I've said about your word is consistent with it and true to it. We, We pray, Father, that we will grow and grow in our faith and confidence in you and your Son, Jesus, as the Son of God. And we pray, Father, that as that faith and understanding increases, our fear will decrease. Help us, Father, not to walk in by trusting ourselves, our own ability, but to trust in you and your provision. And Father, we pray that you'll help us to face the challenges of life with confidence, knowing that you are with us, knowing that you're going ahead of us, and being confident in your promise that you will provide. We're thankful that you provided for us your son, Jesus, that he's provided atonement for our sins, that we can be counted among your children, and that we can have this confidence. We pray in his name. Amen. If you're subject